This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 26. Hi there, and welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part 26, Khomeiniism. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change, and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms. And we invite you to check out parts 1 through 25 of this series that are already posted. To become a sponsor or patron of Rook Media, please contact us through our website. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, part 26. Of all the figures of modern Iranian history, and perhaps global history in the 20th century, few have a name and image that draws more of a reflexive reaction than the man who came to power in 1979 in Iran, Ayatollah He's either seen as a revolutionary spiritual hero or a barbaric throwback dictator, but he certainly inspires no shortage of opinions. So who was the man that led the creation of the Islamic Republic, which remains the regime in power in Iran today? And was he, in fact, a fundamentalist clergyman or a shrewd populist? And how, despite a decade of turbulence in Iran, did he stay in power until his death in 1989? In short, what was Khomeiniism? I'm joined once again today for a second episode of two with an esteemed feature guest who has been described as one of the preeminent Iranian historians of his generation and a leading historian on modern Iran. Dr. Yervand Abrahamian is a renowned Iranian-American scholar and author. He is the Distinguished Professor of Iranian and Middle Eastern History and Politics at the City University of New York. He is also a member of the International Iranian Studies Association, the American American Historical Association and the Middle East Studies Association of North America. Dr. Abrahimian was born in Tehran and grew up partly in Iran, partly in England. He received his bachelor's and master's degrees from Oxford University and his doctorate from Columbia University in New York. He has in the past taught at Princeton, New York University, and Oxford. 
He is the author of several acclaimed books on 20th century Iran, including his celebrated book, Iran Between Two Revolutions, which is a standard text for the study of modern Iran now. Dr. Abrahamian's latest book, Oil Crisis in Iran, From Nationalism to Coup d'Etat, was published last year and right now. It's a great pleasure to have Dr. Yervand Abrahamian join me from New York today. Hello, sir. Thank you, Xi'an, for the introduction. Thank you. Great to have you back. And uh, this is a, a, a meaty one, of course. There's a, there's a lot to say about Khomeini, and I'm not sure we can um, comprehensively cover his whole life and political story in just one hour, but we can try to scratch the surface, as you've written uh, quite a great deal about him and, of course, the revolution of 79. Let me start our conversation and set the stage by quoting you uh, in your book on Khomeini. And uh, this is, you say, my argument is that Khomeiniism should be seen as a flexible political movement expressing socioeconomic grievances, not simply as a religious crusade obsessed with scriptural texts, spiritual purity, and theological dogma. So your case is that Khomeini was not a fundamentalist, or not just a fundamentalist, as he is often seen. To most of the world, fundamentalist and Khomeini are synonymous. So in general terms, to begin, in what way was Khomeini not a fundamentalist? Well, when he appeared in the American press, he was always labeled as Islamic fundamentalist. Um, and of course, the word fundamentalism was already around because of Christian fundamentalism. Um, but the whole notion that Khomeini was popular and had such a charismatic appeal was always traced to that he was really rejecting uh, science, the modern world, uh, rejecting basically technology and wanting to return to the fundamentals of uh, Islam, return to early Mecca, Medina, and therefore he was a rejection of the modern world and a return to something in the past, and that, that he was obsessed with uh, religious texts, interpreting the text literally, and accepting the text as being the absolute truth uh, uh, expressed by God. So it was seen as a mirror image of Christian fundamentalism. And at that time, the word fundamentalism was branded around. It became a, a sort of a sponge word that soaked up many meanings, but often it was applied to this type of rigid, dogmatic uh, looking back uh, to the past. Um, and my argument was that this was really could not explain why Khomeini had such charismatic appeal and there was such a mass movement in the Iranian revolution. Majority of Iranians were not rejecting science, modern medicine, the modern world, and trying to go back to 7th century Mecca, Medina. And therefore, you had to look at what Khomeini was actually saying, what was his public persona, and therefore look at his socioeconomic uh, expressions of grievances to explain why he was popular. 
And the word fundamentalism is actually something that is dropped out of the English political language. Nowadays, you rarely hear the word uh, fundamentalism either for Christians or uh, Islamicists. Uh, often, actually, now, um, if you're talking about um, uh, uh, return to early Islam, people talk about Islamicists right, or right. Uh, or political Islam, or ISIS, or right, you know right. Bin Ladenis, uh, and and oh, you, so there's been a transformation. Christian fundamentalists have become evangelicals, <laughs> right, and the right. reason for this is actually tied to to Islam, because during the Islamic Revolution in Iran, and then of course later with this 9/11. The word fundamentalism was so much stuck to uh, uh, Muslims that Christian uh, fundamentalists actually objected and didn't want to be associated yeah. <laughs> with the right. same concept. Right. That there was so a lobbying. There was a very intense lobbying by Christian uh, fundamentalists not to be called fundamentalists, so they became now evangelicals. But but if Khomeini. Uh, again, just in general terms, because I'm going to ask you about some of the details as we, uh, as you outline them in your book of why you make this argument. But if Khomeini was not uh, just a fundamentalist and, in fact, was a populist, in what ways was he a populist? Well, the language he used, which really didn't exist in traditional Islam or uh, Shias Islam, is the re retort to Mustazafin, the, the the wretched of the earth, the poor, the sankulo, you know, the uh, subaltern classes of society, and their grievances against the rich. So he, he often had this image of society. This is at the height of the revolution. Yes. Uh, seeing basically the Iran divided as the shanty dwellers versus the palace dwellers. And he was, and he represented for his point of view the, the poor, the wretched, the mustazafin, the shanty dwellers, and their grievances against the elite, the rich, uh, the powerful, the, uh, the oppressors. But if part of what you establish in your book about Khomeiniism is this dismissal of the notion of the Iranian revolution being rooted simply in fundamentalist Islam, and rather by the time Khomeini and his followers were mounting their challenge to the Shah's regime, they're, they're using the language and political techniques of radical populism. If we accept that, and we accept that this was a, a popular revolution, including a middle class revolution, how did Khomeini manage to sell the masses on the discourse of an idea of Islam at all? Well, well I, you could say Islam was part of the Iranian culture, mass culture, so it resonated when he talked about Islam. But what he was very careful, and this is where his shrewd populism comes in, uh, during the revolution, he never revealed what his real plan was and intentions. That was kept very close to his chest. Only a few people around his closest disciples knew what his agenda was. So he was appealing to the public on a very populist, even radical uh, slogans. And this was the persona he was known as. But the, his real thinking which was a book called, or lectures called Velayat-e-Fari, 
the, the rule of the jurist, uh, where he really spelled out what later became the Islamic Republic, which was not just an Islamic Republic, but a clerical republic. Right. So even if he's using Islam in the early parts of the revolution, he's using a very elastic version of that that includes the emancipation of women and uh, you know the, the, this sort of nirvana of democracy and freedom, right? Under the rubric yes. of Islam. Uh, I want to come to the, the details of, of that, of that period and, and the actual kinds of uh, policies and, and mission that he pursues that underscores this populism. But before we do that, let, let me let's go backwards and and if you can um, give us a quick debrief on the man before he becomes known to the world in the 60s and then of course the 70s and 80s who who was Khomeini you know the Islamic Republic it occurs to me has has done its very best to portray Ayatollah Khomeini as the quintessential man of the people the idea is that he's born into a humble family and lost his father in infancy and then rises like the phoenix through the clerical hierarchy purely because of his uh, scholastic abilities and uh, devoting his adult life to the struggle against the Pahlavi regime, leaving behind for his surviving son only one worldly possession, a, a family prayer rug. Where, where does the truth lie in who Khomeini really was? He's an enigma, and intentionally he uh, made himself an enigma. I can't find anyone in history, major figure in history, that was so self-basically controlled about his public image, even before he became a public figure. It's very hard to find out, actually, what he was doing until really 1964, 63. Uh, any information about the early period, he tightly controlled so we people can later say oh he was you know allied with this person or that person and it, uh, it's all speculation because we know very little about what he was uh, doing we certain things we know he was a disciple and a student of grand ayatollah Hayeri. And then later, he was a very close to Grand Ayatollah Burujerdi. So he rose up through the clerical hierarchy with these two Grand Ayatollahs who were very well known as apolitical, or the term is often used, quartist, that they right. didn't want to get involved in politics. So being under their patronage, he clearly was not going to stick his head out in politics. So we don't know what his fair body politics were, whether he was actually against Mossadegh, pro-Kashani, or whatever. He basically was very much in the background. Uh, so all we can say is he was a typical cleric, uh, ambitious and careful not to cross his uh, patrons, either Grand Ayatollah Hayri or Burujerdi. It's after Burujerdi dies in 61 that he really comes out uh, in the political arena. And it's at that point, he's not anti-Shah, uh, he's not even a revolutionary. Yeah. Uh, he basically makes his stand on a nationalist issue, which is the uh, so-called capitulations, giving American military advisors uh, extrajudicial powers, i.e. Uh, uh, protection from Iranian law. 
Uh, and but, that was. Let, let me let me come to the sixties. Just just before we do that, yeah. though, I mean, part of the case that you make is that Khomeini uh, transitions or transforms throughout the course of his lifetime, and and the, that acute that uh, political shrewdness grows uh, as as he grows. Just, I mean, with the disclaimer of having you said what you've said about us not knowing a lot about him when in his earlier years, what is your sense of whether the Khomeini who came to be the leader or figurehead of a revolution in 1979 would have recognized the 20-something version of himself? <sighs> Uh, I think he would he would be very conscious as being a cleric, and being a cleric, he clearly would have the grievances of most clerics on the the new state created by the Pahlavis. Uh, so going back to Reza Shah, the marginalization of the clerical establishment. This would have, I think, rubbed him the wrong way, uh, as it would have done with most of the clerics of that time. But that didn't mean necessarily was anti-monarchist or radical at that at that period mm. in, in his twenties. Before we get to 1963 and and Khomeini's significant entry into politics, then in our last shot, uh, Doctor Abrahamian, we, we we talked about Mossadegh and the 1953 coup, and you made partially you made the case that uh, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi actually had great foresight in understanding that the overthrow of Mossadegh could and would uh, lead to the end of the monarchy in Iran. It it it, it seems like a a stretch on the face of it, but popular revolutions don't happen overnight. In what way do you believe that the events of the early 1950s would actually set the stage for Khomeini? Um, well, I don't think he would have, the 53 would have affected him because he probably wasn't, uh, at that time, non-radical enough not to get involved in mm. politics. So he probably would have done what Burujerdi did, which was basically accept the 53 coup um, and, you know, take reality. And the first real time that Khomeini actually publishes something political, it's not under his name, but we can you know now it's on. He says, he criticizes Reza Shah for not taking the advice of the clerics and saying that basically the clerics want to give advice because they want to preserve the monarchy. Mm. So he's a monarchist at that time. Um, so he, he's, uh, he wants the monarchy be more reliant on the clerical establishment. He's not asking anything more. Um, and it's not till really after sixties that he comes out and becomes even more critical. But even then, uh, he's not actually calling for the destruction of the monarchy. When you, I, I've seen you at some point say that um, after Mossadegh was effectively sidelined, Khomeini emerges as the new national leader of the opposition, basically in Iran. When when would you date that to? 
That I would to I would mention the the capitulations are uh, sixty three, sixty four. So what happens in sixty three? I mean, this is Khomeini's, as I said, significant entry into politics, and it's amidst the Shah's reforms known as the White Revolution. What leads yes. to Khomeini being arrested and detained at that time? Well, here again, his his I think shrewdness and political savvy. The the White Revolution seventy two seventy three. Uh, many of the 62, clerics, 62, 62. 62 yeah. yeah. Uh, many of the clerics then opposed the the land reform, um, and they were then, of course, the Shah could brush the uh, clerical establishments as being anti-reform or especially land reform. Uh, Khomeini was actually shrewd enough not to take the issue of land reform a central issue. He took the central issue as the capitulations and giving of these uh, privileges to American uh, military advisors and uh, therefore uh, basically making his pitch on a nationalistic grounds rather than anti-reform grounds. It's something that's um, I, I find fascinating, and you mentioned it a few m- moments ago, but that you outline in your book, is that, um, if I understand this correctly, Khomeini was not a revolutionary in the 1940s, 50s, even in the 60s, and rather retained pretty traditional attitudes towards the state. Even in 1963, when he emerges as the the, the most vocal uh, anti-regime cleric. He doesn't call for a revolution or the overthrow of the monarchy. Rather, he's kind of castigating the Shah for secularism and modernist reforms and, as yeah. you say, anti-nationalism. When and how do Khomeini's attitudes begin to get more strident in terms of then calling for any removal of the Pahlavi regime? Well, the first clear indication is in 1970, he gives a number of lectures in uh, Najaf, in exile. Uh, these lectures then become a book called Velayat Fari, Hukumat Islami. And here, the first time you really see him calling for the elimination of the monarchy um, and the establishment of, at that time, he doesn't call it a republic, but an Islamic state. Uh, so it's 1970 is the time. But uh, these lectures were actually not well known. These were, again, because if you read them, what they're arguing is for a clerical state. Um, and, of course, he didn't want the public to know him as a, someone who wanted a clerical dictatorship. He wanted to be known as a, much more as a populist. So th- these lectures were not well circulated. And during the revolution, no one ever talked about Velayat Fari. Hmm. That term was only came in after the revolution, i.e. when he had power and it came to writing a constitution, then he, you can say the, he revealed his true cards and then his disciples basically wrote a constitution that was modeled on his lectures, Velayat Fari. And just to be uh, clear, the Velayat Fari declares in in no uncertain terms that, that Islam is inherently incompatible with all forms of monarchy, right? Yes. He argues basically the prophets uh, came 
to denounce monarchies, that Moses was not just against that particular pharaoh, he was against all pharaohs. Um, and there has been never a, a monarch who's been just. He even says Anushirvan, who is usually known as Anushirvan, the just in Iran, he, uh, even Anushirvan was unjust. And so, and so then presumably Muslims have a, a sacred duty to oppose all monarchies. Yes, right. I mean, but this was completely new, of course, because both in Sunni and Shia Islam, monarchy was accepted as the as the normal form of government. You don't hear in earlier is Islamic thinkers talking about a republic. So you 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 kind of helped me there a moment ago because I was I was trying to square the circle between. Khomeini doing these lectures in 1970, the and um, which you know are, are is a revolutionary statement um, around a, around wanting to create a theocratic uh, rule, but and then the the case that you've made that Khomeini through the 60s into the 70s um, becomes more attuned to messaging that is more palatable and popular to intellectuals and the left in Iran. So I'm thinking, well, how do how can both of those things be true? How how can he be appealing to the intellectuals on the left and at the same time doing the speeches on, on yeah. Velay But, But I guess because the Velay was not um, popularly known, is that the, the, the idea? Yeah, I mean, one of his disciples later argued that the book and the notions of Velay were not well known because there was a conspiracy between some of uh, Khomeini's supporters like Bani Sadr, Khotbzadeh, uh, Yazdi and Marxists to keep uh, the book basically hidden. Hmm. And this is a, obviously an absurd accusation. Those people and the Marxists had no power to censor the book. If Khomeini and Khomeini's disciples wanted to circulate that book, they wouldn't have been stopped. They, 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 those people didn't have the power to stop them. Um, the, the reason Velayta Fari was not well known was, I think, in intentional for Khomeini and his supporters that they didn't want to reveal or what they wanted was a, a very rigid clerical state. Right, right. Uh, well, um, it, it makes sense to me that Bani Sadr or Yazdi would want to bury it, um, whether they uh, played any role in, <laughs> in in censoring the book or not. <laughs> that seems yeah, absurd, I, but but I can understand why they wouldn't want that out there. I mean, it's yeah. it was a... I mean, uh, Rotsadeh actually once said that he had never heard of the term Velayatafari till after the revolution. Hmm. And also, there's if you actually look at the original edition of Velayatafari, it doesn't have Khomeini's name on it. It has a pseudonym. And at that time, if you ask people, well, you know, these are, are these really Khomeini's ideas? The answer would have been, well, you know, these are lecture notes from students, and you can never rely on student lecture notes. Huh. And any professor would have agreed with that. But, but, but was the Velayatafaki entirely Khomeini's idea, or is it borrowed from centuries earlier? No, the, the term Velayatafaki has a long tradition in Shia Islam, uh, not in Sunni Islam. What it means is the authority of the of senior uh, clerics, but it's the authority basically of senior clerics to um, to be supervisors 
of the mentally incapable uh, widows who don't have male uh, custodians mm. um, and orphans. Um, so this was a term that was often used basically for clerics to have jurisdiction over, you can say, people who needed jurisdiction. Um, and th so there was a long tradition of this. But what Khomeini was doing was extending this to not just to widows, um, the mentally incapable orphans, but the whole population. The argument is the whole population needed the guidance of the clerics. Uh, so again, it's, a, it's an old term. Is, uh, but it gives it a very different uh, content. Mm. And many people, of course, uh, didn't realize that. I think the, the people who really realized it were other senior clerics, like Ayatollah Shariat Madari and Golpaya Ghani, who were uh, much more traditional and realized that this went counter to the traditional notion of what Velayat Afari meant. Let, let, let me ask you about Khomeini's shrewdness and political acumen as the the revolution happens um part of khomeini's populism is in the discourse he ends up employing right and so how did khomeini break from shi'i traditions and and borrow radical rhetoric from foreign sources i'm thinking including marxism to to present this this bold appeal to the public based not on theological themes, but on um, real economic, social, political grievances. We know that this rhetoric uh, by 1977-78, he incorporates a lot of even Marxist rhetoric about the Mustazafin and the oppressed and so on. But he never footnotes, obviously, <laughs> where he's getting his ideas or his terminology from. Uh, so he, he wants to be purely authentic. He's not going to go to leftist sources or foreign sources to, say, footnote them. All we can say, speculate, is that during the, in the 70s in exile he was often visited by student leaders from the confederation and he obviously read a lot of uh, exiled uh, newspapers uh, published by national front in paris in beirut and these ideas of uh, radical notions uh, would have seeped through uh, and of course, in Iraq itself at that time, there was a lot of uh, Shia radicalism because the, Shia, the Iraqi Communist Party was very influential and the clerics, Shia clerics in Iraq had to compete with the Iraqi Communist Party. So they incorporated a lot of uh, Marxist rhetoric into their discourse. Uh, so I think one can speculate that this type of influences uh, he absorbed and he obviously selectively brought into his own language. And how does that lead to, and how does that play on the, for the population? How does it lead, in what way is it appealing in terms of the, those social and economic grievances, for example? Well, but 
because there were so many grievances, social economic grievances in Iran, uh, especially in, in the lower classes, working classes, and also, of course, in the bazaar, uh, this basically tapped into them. Um, and of course, this language also was being circulated within Iran by uh, Muslim intellectuals such as Shariati, who was also uh, uh, absorbing a lot of ra uh, Marxist language yes. into his thinking. Yes. Uh, so Khomeini obviously re read Shariati. He, he, again, he's not going to praise Shariati or uh, pay lip service to him. But he knew that uh, people were reading Shariati and Shariati was popular. So he would have uh, really borrowed things from Shariati he thought had the popular appeal. Uh, Dr. Abrahamian, you've you've written a lot and, and spoken a lot about Khomeini's commitment to the preservation of middle class private property. Why why is that so important? Because how radical he is in his polemics, um, he is not willing to go to the I would say the line uh, red line between. Uh, middle-class radicalism and socialism, which is that uh, socialism uh, property can be distributed uh, for public good. Uh, for middle-class radicalism, property is still sacred. Private property should not be violated. So that becomes the central idea, uh, notion in uh, liberalism or uh, middle-class radicalism. So you often find, uh, uh, even in, in Latin America, however populist people are, like Peron, uh, he does not actually violate uh, uh, sanctity of private property. He doesn't mm. expropriate land from huge plantation owners and so on. So in a way, the Shah was much more radical in that he was willing to take land from uh, a big uh, feudal landowners and distribute it. But uh, populists, radical populists, uh, would find th that not palatable because as long as property is earned uh, lawfully, and according to Khomeini, it would be according to Xi regulations, then that property is is sacred and should not be violated. And so middle-class propertyed citizens feel less threatened by a, a new regime. Yes, yeah, unless you're a member of a minority and then you could say, they could, they could argue that, well, you you didn't follow uh, Xi regulations and therefore this was unearned property. But the question of limitations on property actually became a political issue. And here again, you see uh, the limitations of Khomeini's radicalism. After the revolution, the question was, uh, should there be a ceiling on how much farmers could have in uh, farmland? Or uh, should their large farms distributed so there would be more of equality among peasants uh, and you would have small farms? And this became a major ideological dispute between, I, I would say, um, much more socialistic Islamic uh, radicals who were 
uh, more than willing to have a limitation on the ceiling on how much uh, farmers could have. While the conservatives argued no, that would be a violation of private property if the farmer had uh, accumulated a lot of land in the proper way, then uh, Islam had to protect that property. And there was a back and forth discussion about that. Eventually, of course, the conservatives won. There was no limit put on uh, ownership of property. There's such an interesting uh, intersection here with an episode we did uh, about a month ago on secularism in Iran post-revolution. And it was with uh, Dr. Pat Gu, who, uh, who I presume you know, and his his um, case was, you know, saying that, uh, I mean, he, he was also speaking about the shrewdness of Khomeini when Khomeini realizes that he can't um, be some sort of mystical um, religious uh, uh, symbolic leader and preside over a functioning modern state at the same time. And given the choice, errs more on the side of being the leader of a modern state. Uh, yes, and in this case also, I think, on the side of uh, private property, which means basically the, the property middle class, yeah. yeah. And yet he's kind of playing all sides, isn't he? Because he, as we, we've been saying, Khomeiniism adopts many of the, the tenets of class warfare to, to make an appeal to the workers. Um, that is like, on the one hand, claiming to reject the West, and on the other hand, adopting things like International Workers' Day. It feels like nothing could be more incongruous with an Islamic state than May Day, but it's certainly shrewd. What, what did it mean to the general population that May Day becomes a thing? Well, I mean, I think for the average person, it says, okay, this Islamic Republic is radical. Khomeini is serious about his radicalism. Uh, without people actually, of course, having not read Velayat Farid's book or knowing that his uh, sentiments are very much still conservative in terms of protection of private property. Another part of his shrewdness on a modern state is whenever put in a corner, uh, Khomeini himself does not come down clearly on one side. He does the typical political thing. He sets up a committee. And then, of course, appoints people in the committee, uh, knowing well how people are going to vote, so that uh, the committee then makes the final decision, is responsible for it. So uh, radicals can still say, well, Khomeini would have supported uh, distribution of property among poor peasants. It was others who blocked this and sabotaged it. It was some committee that he set up. It's interesting, isn't it? There's there's dictators that revel in being dictators, and then this is a dictator who wants to appear that he's not, right? Yes, or not have response, take responsibility for a decision that may not be popular. Um, you mentioned Peron a few moments ago, and you, you've argued that Khomeiniism, uh, despite its religious dimension, in many ways resembles Latin American populism. How so? Well, I, I think, again, it's a, it's a radical rhetoric, uh, but behind the Catholic rhetoric is still the, uh, the weddedness to uh, private property. 
and of course, the, the big difference is, of course, in the South American, it's not the clerical aspect is not there. For Khomeini, clerical aspect is very important. It's just he doesn't reveal it till after the revolution. You say that in the 1982 to 1989 period, so post first years of the revolution and uh, final seven years of Khomeini's life, that Khomeini toned down his language um, and focused on institutionalizing the revolution, building the Islamic Republic, which increasingly, as we've been saying, took the shape of a propertied uh, middle-class republic. Um, Are we overstating the toned down bit? I mean, he certainly didn't tone things down when it came to his messianic zeal for involvement in the Iran-Iraq war or mass execution of political president prisoners in 1988. I mean, what, what, what does tone down mean in that context? Um, there actually, I mean, it's not a smooth uh, movement. I think it's, it's more zigzags. Uh, during Rafsanjani's period, when he was president, clearly there was a thermidor toning down uh, Rafsanjani would have wanted to basically normalize relations with the West, uh, have a b- economic boom, bring in uh, Western oil companies and so on, uh, basically uh, uh, stabilize the regime by prosperity. And that was would have been a typical thermidor. But then I think there was conflict within the regime between um but the, the those who wanted to export the revolution continue the fervor of the revolution, and so it's back and forth. The, the, of course, the Iraqi war also complicated issues. I think that created for, for some people a lot of disillusionment, um, and there, of course, uh, Khomeini was not politically shrewd. I think his biggest mistake in his career was continuing the war mm. after Khoramshar was uh, liberated and taking the war into Iraq. That really, I think, undermined uh, the appeal of the Iranian revolution and lost a lot of support within the yes. country. Yes. There's, a, there's another paradox. I, uh, help me f- figure this out. I mean, if we take your argument that the reason Khomeiniism survived as a, for, the, for the decade until he died was not because of religious slogans or an Islamic mission, but, but it, that it fulfilled social and economic expectations by bringing modernization infrastructure to rural areas of Iran, so the gap between urban and rural begins to close. If we accept all of that, um, uh, which I think is, makes a lot of sense and is a, uh, uh, is a compelling argument, uh, I, there's part of me that niggles as well, though, that says, didn't the Islamic Republic actually survive because it's a very repressive and controlled police state. <laughs> I mean, how how do you uh, how can we we give give uh, props to the to the, uh, um, the to the fulfilling economic expectations when we know that anybody who acted out against uh, this regime um, w- would have been shut down pretty heavily? Yeah, no, I mean, I, one can't shouldn't minimize the repression and the violence or the regime's willingness to use violence. But regimes can't really survive purely by terror. 
they need some sort of legitimacy. And I think with the Khomeini regime, it's legitimate partly because the revolution was popular. But oh, I think even equally important is that after the revolution, at least in the first 30 years, the regime did succeed in bringing in some uh, benefits for the mass of the rural population. Uh, so that the it wasn't quite, not completely irrational for many people in the villages to continue supporting the regime, even when it became quite oppressive mm. against the opposition. Uh, things may have changed then after, you know, in, in the more last 10 years, because I think the benefits have sort of now taken us basically for granted. Uh, and there's been a drying up of new benefits uh, and economic, basically, difficulties have un eroded that part of the appeal of the regime. So the regime is only the legitimacy left is the, uh, the original appeal of the revolution. But of course, as time flies, uh, goes by, that becomes less important. Do you think uh, Khomeini believed his own... Um rhetoric uh i know this is a tough question it's like the the current um trend is to ask um pundits about what putin is thinking as if everybody yeah. can guess what vladimir putin is thinking but <laughs> but if, if you were to take a guess at it um when you say you know khomeini's idea is that the islamic republic would be basically like a democratic society but th that the guidance of the society would be in the hands of clerics uh and of course he'd be appointed life uh, for leader for life it, it, do you think that that was lip service or do you think he actually believed that he was bringing democracy well again actually you have to look carefully when he says you know democracy or people will be free he always qualified it as long as they abide by islam that's a big uh, qualification who defines what is islam he defines it hmm. uh so even the terms that in Paris, where he sounds very democratic and, you know, everyone will be free and stuff, there's always this qualification in his statements. Uh, so I think he did believe it, but the listeners obviously didn't hear that part of his statement. You're right that he's incredibly controlled, isn't he? There's, there's, there's few sort of... Um, words out of place from his mission throughout a, a relatively long lifetime. Yes, yeah. And also, I mean, you see that whenever he deals with even Iraqi officials, uh, he always does it through interpreters. He must have known enough Arabic to be able to speak hmm. uh, with local uh, officials, but he always had the protection of interpreters. And, and, you know, in these interviews in Paris also, it's very controlled. Um, and if he didn't like any question, he wouldn't answer the question. It's um, it's as ever um, energizing and educational getting to talk to you. A final question, uh, and I suppose it's a, a, a sort of a million dollar question, but you first wrote Khomeiniism in the 1990s. Um, a lot has changed since then. What do you believe the legacy of the approach and tactics of Ayatollah Khomeini, Khomeiniism, if you will, um, w what is that legacy over 30 years since his death? 
Well, I think the legacy isn't not that much because, like, unlike most revolutions, this revolution really did not have appeal outside Iran and the Shia world. It, 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 although it claimed to be Islamic, the language was so uh, Shia, especially the notion of Elayat Fari, that it's not a revolution for export. So the whole fear, fear that existed in 79, 80s, that this revolution was going to spread throughout the Middle East and become a worldwide Islamic revolution, that just didn't work out. There was no, there's no legacy of that left. So when, when the Arab Springs came, you don't have any echo of the Iranian Revolution in the Arab Springs. In fact, the Arab rebels, the last thing they wanted to do is associate it with the Khomeini Revolution. What about the actual um, tenets of, of Khomeiniism? Did they, that, that shrewd um, um, political awareness of, of the rural and, and urban and, and all that we've discussed, how long does that remain after he dies or is it still there today? No, I think what has become is, is the more uh, conservative elements, especially both in the clerics and the bazaar, have become more dominant. So, of course, that the radical rhetoric has disappeared, except for on the question of uh, of the U.S. and Israel. But uh, social radicalism has basically diminished. So, you have a great deal of economic inequality in Iran, probably more so now than even before the revolution, and, and that obviously. It's not part of the legacy of the revolution that is brought in more of an egalitarian society. Um, and also, uh, there were, I think, during the revolution, there were fundamentalists in the movement. It's just Khomeini himself was not a fundamentalist. But that the f more fundamentalist elements have become more predominant as time has gone on. So that... Uh, you have a hardening of actually intellectual thought, uh, periods where it is opening like during Khatemi's time. But on the whole, it's the, the intellectual fervent and discussions that you had in the early years, that, that, that has really diminished and just become much more um, uh, claustrophobic. How do you see, as an historian, uh, the view of Khomeini um, shifting in the in the forty years since he came to power, and then thirty to three years since he's di he's died. And what do you think? Where do you think that image, that impression of Khomeini, will go into the future? Uh, well, it's when you have someone who's so I can you can say flexible and pragmatic. It's hard to find a central core that you can say later on people are going to uh, find appealing. It, the, the central core is, of course, uh, in Khomeini, is the clerical aspect, clerical rule. And that's not something that's going to, I think, have much appeal. Uh, for either now or in the future, it's not it's not something saleable for other societies or even for Iran. Interesting. It was an interesting answer. 
Um, what what about his? You in the very beginning of our chat today, you mentioned charisma. Um, do you think I, I didn't ask you this before? I should ask you it for the sake of it. What is your sense of why he was so charismatic? On, on the face of it, he doesn't seem that charismatic. Seems like a, certainly for a Western kid growing up, he seemed like an angry old man. But but, <laughs> but he clearly was charismatic enough to move millions, right? So what what, what was it? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up charisma. I don't deal with it really much in the book. But the more I've thought about it and read uh, Max Weber, he really fits into Max Weber's notion of charisma, being someone, it's not the person himself that creates charisma, it's the situation that permits someone becoming charismatic. And according to Max Weber, people obey for basically two major reasons. They obey because of tradition, what the law, established law tells you, custom. And then there's the modern type of uh, obeying because uh, institutions, modern law tells you to obey. Now, so there's these two forms of uh, legitimacy. But if there is no uh, normal legitimacy, there's a breakdown of legitimacy, there's a vacuum, then you could have, for uh, Max Weber, uh, prophets appearing. For him, charisma is something supernatural, comes from God, uh, some beyond. It's the person that speaks and what he says is more important than what custom tradition has said. And of course, it's before there is a, a institutional, modern, uh, bureaucratic uh, legitimacy. So I think what in Iran happens is after 53, when uh, legitimacy breaks down, because of the coup, there's a vacuum of legitimacy. And the, the, if the constitutional uh, revolution becomes illegitimate. So in this, in this vacuum of lack of legitimacy that Khomeini appears and says, well, I, am, I know the law, I am the person who can set the things in order, hmm. uh, uh, and I have authority beyond basically either tradition or bureaucracy. So I, I can say, uh, I can set the law. So in, in Christianity, you have Jesus saying, well, the law tells you this, but I tell you something else. And what I tell you is more important what than the traditional law tells you. And that's what real charisma is. And people then listen to that person because the, he is setting up a new form of legitimacy. Oh. It blows my mind. That's that is so such an interesting take in, in an age of uh, Instagram where we <laughs> where we we assume uh, charisma is is pearly white teeth and uh, walking on the red carpet. Uh, this is a this is a, a really interesting take on on charisma. Partly being the person uh, at the right moment in history saying the appropriate thing that is going to move the masses. Yeah. And also basically saying, 
don't listen to the past. Uh, don't listen to bureaucrats. Don't listen to people who are in authority. I'm I'm the real authority. <laughs> but you have to believe. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, you tell me. You, I would assume part of that is you have to believe the authenticity of the person, right? If they're not, if you don't think they're authentic, the charismata, the char- the charisma isn't Good. so shiny. Yeah, and that also I think this ties into his radical rhetoric that, that that's appealing to people and they're willing to follow him because he seems to be promising things that they that they want. Dr. Yervond Abrahamian, it's been a great pleasure. I thank you again for this. I enjoyed very much talking to you. Thank you very much, Jan. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dr. Yervond Abrahamian is a renowned Iranian-American scholar and author and the distinguished professor of Iranian and Middle Eastern history and politics at the City University of New York. His latest book, Oil Crisis in Iran, From Nationalism to Coup d'Etat, was published last year. Dr. Yervon Abrahamian joined me from New York City today. This is full time for the Rook Media series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 26. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at our website, the hub of all things Rook, rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com, where you can also become a patron of our program. Thanks to the team who make Rook Media happen, talented Anahita, Super Patty Saw, Ponta the Artist, Savvy Roham, Alay Merdad, the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shia. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashin. <laughs>